Hey everybody, this is Eric. I want to thank you guys for being amazing listeners of the AdCast throughout the year of 2022. And for those who have never listened to the AdCast before, you're welcome. This is a treat. And what we did was we compiled some of the best moments of 2022 and we're serving it right for you. It's like a buffet, a buffet of advertisers and marketers and business owners. We put together some of the best moments from some entrepreneurs that you will hear from that are all around the world, people in Asia, Europe, even here in the States. Some of the greatest minds in business and also in the greatest minds in marketing. You'll hear from people who created technology that they actually sold to Pinterest. Or you'll also hear from an entrepreneur who lost $200 million overnight. But the most important thing is how they bounce back. That's what we want you to do in 2023. And we hope that you enjoy these moments from the AdCast. Well, Nick, I mean, that's a that's such great point. So I want to ask you this question. Do you feel like uh, uh, being creative has gotten more difficult? And the reason I ask, I, I ask that question is because there's so many things that are vying for our attention nowadays, you know? So it, it, it's almost like you can't make it too long. You, you have to make it interesting. It has to be realistic. Has, cre- has it gotten harder for creatives lately? Um, well, you asked, to, the first question was, is it harder being creative? And I think the answer to that is no. And in fact, what's really exciting for, for me now that I'm kind of getting on in years <laughs> is seeing how uh, particularly young people coming into the world of creativity have so many powerful tools at their disposal for making really fantastic emotionally resident powerful creative work you know when back when I was at art school it was you know you wanted to take photos you you had to you had to have a ton of money to do that you had to buy an SLR camera you had to develop film you know it was making videos making films was really hard so the tools of creativity um, are more varied and more powerful than ever before and I think that's fantastic yeah I agree is it is it is it harder to deliver uh, is it harder to work as a creative in a commercial environment? I don't know that it's harder. I think it's maybe um, more competitive. I think it's more complex. Um, I think it's uh, probably harder to judge breakthrough powerful work too, because there's just more out there. You know, mm-hmm. what what's better? Is it the big um, multi-million dollar uh tv spot uh that you see in the super bowl or some brilliant smart bit of creativity that you see on a Mm -hmm. tiktok series Mm -hmm. you know it and and how does that latter thing um stand up alongside work that's more more um resourced you know so i I think it's just a more complex picture not necessarily more difficult picture no and you bring up a great point you talked about the tools like how you do have a lot more tools now uh, but you know you can have the tools but then there's also the content part of it that has to resonate with people and i think great creative in my opinion has to really touch people to be able to move them to either act or or, or stand behind something so so you know as far as creating now I know it's easier because of the tools, but do you feel like uh, there are so many different opinions and uh, to be able to create? And, and, I, and I, use that, uh, I use that because um, one of the great comedians like in the U.S. was like a, like a Richard Pryor, a Red Fox, those guys. 
but you can't use that type of comedy today because it may seem offensive, you know? That, there's a ton of stuff in, in, in that question. I think it's, I think it's a great point that you make. Um, you know, the hardest, one of the things that gets in the way of creativity, um, paradoxically can be other creatives work actually. Wow. So when you, particularly as a writer, um, sometimes you've got to kind of isolate yourself and trust your own creative capability uh, and not allow yourself to get influenced by stuff that's kind of coming in from outside. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, your, your point perhaps about, you know, yeah, yes, there are all these tools, but of course, creativity has to touch people and resonate with people emotionally a thousand percent. And of course, a tool isn't going to make anyone into a good creative if they're not a good creative. And creativity is about bringing together threads of things that um, have perhaps have influenced you in your past, your particular unique perspective on the world. And that's the important bit, right? Every human being has a completely unique perspective on the world. Really brilliant creative people have a gift, an ability to take that perspective, take perhaps some influences from the things that they see around them in the world and the tools that they have as a creative individual and bring those things together and shine a light yeah. on the world in a way that people haven't seen before. So if you take a comedian like you know Richard Pryor back in the day, he was shining a light on a shared experience, but through a lens that was 100% unique to him. Great point. Created Great point. A, a kind of root into people's hearts uh, and exploded into into a powerful cultural impact now you know your point about well there's certain things you can't do or say now or it's more difficult to do or say because there are kind of in increased sensitivities but also increased awareness i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing mm -hmm. you know as, as a queer person coming up through the ad industry you know when i was in my 20s in the 90s you know mm -hmm. there was all kinds of stuff that was said in my hearing inside agencies that I just kind of sucked up and put up with the, yeah. quite I, rightly. And I'm sorry you had to go through that too, man. Well, you know, it's, it's not, it's hardly unique to me, you know, and lots of, lots of, lots of folks from all kinds of backgrounds that experience this stuff. And I think that um, coming to creative work with a degree of sensitivity for, you know, who's going to encounter that and understanding, well, what, what is, what does that mean when, I put this out into the world. Um, how is that going to land for somebody? I think that's important, but yeah. uh, there's a there's a caveat to that, which is, you know, you creativity does demand a degree of uh, courage, bravery, and freedom, and um, and also sometimes provocation. And the, I think the kind of rule of thumb that is pretty effective and universal is punch up, but don't punch down. You know, people in positions of power who choose to direct their, uh, you know, their, their their criticism or their, you know, what they may feel to be their insights at people, people who have less power than they do, mm -hmm. not okay. People who come from a position of, you know, relatively little power, yeah, by all means, punch up. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. Po point point out the weaknesses and point, I love point that. Out I love that term. I love that term. Punch up, but don't punch down. Uh, how about empathy? You have to have some empathy, right? Well, I don't think you can be creative if you don't have empathy. You know, uh, I, I, I read a fantastic uh, 
uh, insight the other day. I can't remember where, which was that people who read books, people who read novels um, are more empathic, become more empathic. So the more you read about other people's experiences, the more empathic you become. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love, I think there's something unique actually about the power of writing, really good writing to connect you with other people's experiences. You know, I'm sure we all remember books that we read, you know, it could even be a kid's book that absolutely, or, or, or a book that you read as a teen that suddenly opened your mind to an experience that you hadn't considered before. Uh, and it, and it, 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 it's this sort of magic route into another person's experience. And that's what, creativity and art can do that's what commercial creativity can do and you know to your point about touching people emotionally that can happen in a, in a tv spot where suddenly you're transported into another person's experience that could be through humor it could be funny it could be through pathos it could be something that makes you feel tearful mm -hmm. um, it could be through joy or uh or inspiration you might be watching a sports person and suddenly feel that energized and inspired to do something brilliant yourself mm -hmm. when that happens that's kind of a piece of magic and it happens because of a thousand critical decisions made by the creative teams responsible for for delivering that work and you see that when you look at work side by side you know you can go well you know how come this ad for nike just gave me the feels and right like, <laughs> like, you know but i have the kind of goosebumps but i watched this ad by another brand and it was also about a sports person i just kind of felt like nothing another thing too is like in in recent weeks uh diversity and inclusion has come up a lot and, and and especially when it comes to creative, because, you know, there, there was a time where I may have the best idea, but I would not be considered or you, depending on how people looked at it. So do you do you feel like uh, now that DEI or diversity and inclusion is on everyone's radar, that better creatives being seen, it's being heard or people are being listened to that once were not listened to? Uh not necessarily. I think that we still probably have work to do, right? I think for mm. myself, uh, you know, and this is where kind of going all the way back, where it's sort of like the like a privilege to fall into something, to fall into a career. Like there is no way for me to know, right. to quantify, like mm -hmm. the way that my identity, even though like I'm 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 clearly very like I'm very Jewy. And they, mm -hmm. they, Jewy. But even though that, like, there's no way for me to quantify how just the fact that I was an ambitious white male, mm -hmm. like, really helped me move up, right? How growing up in the community that I did and having the educational opportunities that I did really allowed me to step into creative, right? Like, the to be creative is very much of a privilege. And that's not to say that you can't do it. Like if you come from um, less privileged sort of neighborhoods or anything like that, right. there's a reason there's a reason why like diversity and inclusion is a conversation, because a lot of times not only were those people locked out because of maybe systemic things or implicit biases or what have you, but it was just right. not necessarily like you got to put food on your plate and like just like creating little things in your bedroom isn't necessarily going to do that, right? Like yeah. what is the actual actionable? So I think, you know, one, we have to humble ourselves to that reality. And then we have to continue to look for those voices, right? As an employer, it's kind of hard because I can't, you know, diversity include having a, a, a diversity of different mindsets, perspectives and backgrounds. Like I want that. I crave yeah. that. 
right? It, it makes it, I, I believe it makes it, it, it kind of opens your thinking more, you know? Absolutely. But I also have to like, I can't necessarily like go in and say like, all right, all I want to do is interview women. Right. Yeah. So I have to, I have to approach every, you know, everybody from a standpoint of equity and measure people on the merits and measure people on the creative. What I try to encourage or what I try to do myself is I try to see through a resume. Mm -hmm. I try to see through a portfolio at potential, right? Because, you know, sometimes that gets hidden with the big names people have worked yeah. with, or the big brands people have worked with, or the big agencies people have worked with, and realizing that some of that opportunity to work with those agencies, to work with those brands is a function of just whatever privilege, whatever I can't quantify, whatever, you know, I don't know, they were able to get in. Whereas, you know, this talented designer from Birmingham, right? Mm -hmm. They're working with a lot of like companies or a lot of just like local businesses in Alabama that I had never, that I never heard of that don't necessarily look shiny to me, but the work that they do looks great. And so I have to see through that and see what their potential is and how I can apply that to something bigger, something maybe they didn't imagine being able to touch, right? Uh, so those are the opportunities that I look for. I think that it's good to have these conversations because it makes it like more front of mind. But yeah. I think it's more, I think what's also important is that we're not just having the conversa the conversations from a superficial standpoint, right? Like, oh, we just need more diversity and inclusion and equity yeah. and whatnot. Like we really understand what that means because of the way that the industry was built, because of the way creative was built and shaped and because of how like in our own lives, we benefited from those like systemic things that were built to allow us to rise. That's going to enable us to then break that down and open that up to more people. Do you think a lot, there's still relevancy now um, in college with someone being a marketer? And, and I only ask that because I had someone say to me like, okay, do I need to send my kid to school to be in advertising and marketing? And my answer was no. And, and it's not to take away from anything that anyone goes to college for. Um, I, I think really you have to really put yourself in that space. That's, that's my opinion. You have to put yourself in that space and really emerge yourself in, in, in sociology, how people respond to things, you know, yeah. design, everything else. And I think you can be an amazing marketer because sometimes like when you are done with the three, four years of school, those things could be outdated, especially like, you know, how fast things are moving now, you know? And I was going to say that the relevancy of some of the marketing courses that I took, I feel like it's not, well, school is good if you want to be an employee. If you want to run your business, mm. I don't really see the need. I should say that college because wow. I went through grad school and I'm looking back like fudge. Why did I spend all that money? <laughs> you know, it's good. I know some stuff, you know, that could help me, but it's just like, man, how did I spend that money? You know, learning a bit more about entrepreneurship and, you know, being uh -huh. boots on the ground, running a business. I could have been much farther ahead, but you know, it is what it is. But I think college is good if you want to help somebody run their company. Wow, man. A lot of people, they leave college or they leave their um, training program 
And it's just, they're just on this path, like, oh, I got to get new clients, got to do this. But it's like, are you learning new skills? Are you learning new things that you can take back to your clients and help them, excuse me, help them grow? Like, how are you leveling up so your clients can level up? Because what you know and what you learn, you can help them grow and you can show them, you know, how to do things differently and change their perspective and give them new ideas. So how are you leveling up? You know, are you charging 10 times more, but you still have the same set of skills? Like, no, I don't believe in that. Man, a a mentor of mine, his name's Arnie Malham, and he used to have an advertising agency. And he tells me, he told me this story about a client that he had. He said, Eric, that client told me that if I don't grow, they will fire me. And I didn't get it. But then wow. when he when he broke it down, he said, because that client intended to grow. And if that client was growing and his agency was not growing, not just in people, but in value that they're providing, he yeah. said he, he was going to get rid of them. I, and he said, he said, the minute he told me that I got the message and I made sure that we always grew, yeah. not just, not just the bottom line, but the people as yeah. well. You know, uh, no, no, that's huge. Um, you know, you talked about something before, you know, we're, we've always heard the funnel of your business, yeah. but then, you know, HubSpot has like this, this flywheel. So let's, let's talk about the difference between a funnel for your business and then the flywheel. Yeah. So most businesses uh, talk about themselves in terms of a funnel, which is totally reasonable. If you look at any conversion rate metric chart, Uh, in whatever system you use to measure your business metrics, um, it's going to be kind of funnel shaped, right? You're going to have a lot of people knowing a little bit about your company, a smaller number of people actually interacting with your sales team, and then the smallest number of people becoming customers. Um, And that is is a reality that we don't mean to to downplay at all. The, The problem though, with thinking about a funnel, your, your company as a funnel or, or a customer journey as being a funnel is that, it's very linear, right? And it seems like the start of the story is they they heard mm-hmm. about our company, and then the end of the story is they paid us some money, and now we're done. <laughs> and okay, uh, okay, that okay. Is insufficient, right? Especially in the modern world, because um, your customers now um, with with online review sites and with social media and with all these things, they are in a very impactful way telling the world what it's like to do business with your company, right? And if they are happy, very true. If they are posting on Twitter or or Facebook or wherever, LinkedIn, and saying like, man, I just bought from this company. It was an awesome experience. They gave me more than I was expecting. And they're helping me every step of the way as I'm getting set up. If you're looking for a company that does whatever thing, definitely check them out. That's going to have an impact, right? Um, some people mm-hmm. are going to see that and be like, oh, I am looking for a tool that does that. And they're going to come talk to you. Some people aren't going to take any action. But then later, when they come in contact with your company, they'll be like, oh, yeah. My friend so-and-so said working with you was great, and it's going to be much easier to sell to them, right? Because they already have a favorable Mm -hmm. impression. Uh, But the opposite is also true. If you are ripping your customers off, if you are very hard to get a hold of when they need help, if your product doesn't do what you promised it would do, um, then they're going to tell the internet all about that. And what's going to happen Absolutely, they will. no matter how hard your marketing and sales team works, if your company has this lousy reputation... And if all my friends have told me that working with your company is a, a horrible experience that I should avoid at all costs, you're never going to get my business, no matter how good your product is, <laughs> right? 
Um, and so right. what we've realized is, is it's not linear, right? Wh whether your customers are happy or sad or angry has a huge impact on your company's ability to grow. And if they are happy, if they are champions, then your customers become an extension of your marketing and sales team. And so that's why instead of a funnel, which is linear, we, we call it a flywheel, which is a circle. And, and mm -hmm. it can actually accelerate, right? It's, it's not that uh, happy customers just buy from you again, though hopefully they will. It's that they go bring more potential customers to you. They bring their friends and their network and, and referrals and all these things. And so you start to build momentum and, it, and your company grows faster and faster if you have this army of ha happy customers out in the world spreading goodwill. And the opposite is also true. If you have all these unhappy customers, you, you still have this cycle, but it goes slower and slower with each rotation because your salespeople are getting on the phone like, hey, I'm from such and such a company. I have this awesome thing I'd like to offer you. And the people answering the phone are like, mm, I've heard it's actually not awesome. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, you know, and, <laughs> and so uh, that's, that's the idea of the flywheel. Um, we really think that the most important thing is, is the experience you're providing to people, not just once they're customers, but your sales process, right? It, the days yeah. are past that a salesperson can force someone into buying from them, right? Like they use these uh, really aggressive techniques to like stiff oh, arm yeah, it's over. buying a product because it used to be not so very long ago. Um, if I wanted to buy a product, it, it, you know, if I want to buy a refrigerator, um, I had to go to a refrigerator salesman and say, which is the best one? And they would say, this most expensive model is obviously the best one. Give me all your money. And yeah. I have no choice but to choose them. Now, I would never talk to a salesperson about buying a refrigerator, right? I would go on the internet. I would research the reviews and, and reliability and, and choose the one that I want best and then go buy that one, right? And that is true for every product, even B2B spaces, even enterprise spaces. More and more as time goes on, uh, your salespeople are no longer the keepers of the information. They, they, wow. All they can do, the best thing a salesperson can do in the modern world is help someone navigate all that information and make a choice that they're going to be happy with. Um, and if people then see your salespeople as like an ally, wow, this guy, he really helped me. And like, I got a product I'm happy with and it's meeting my needs. And, and he was, he was my guide through that process. Wow. Um, that's going to be so much more powerful than the few extra dollars, a, a really aggressive uh, salesperson might ring out of a potential customer who will then get really unhappy with you and, and leave and never do business with you again. Uh, I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, look at the car buying process. That's changed so much. Yeah. Uh, you, you have more people buying cars sight unseen now, yeah. or, or, you know, they just don't want to deal with the dealership because of what they've heard or what their experiences were like. Right. So if you think about sort of AI and automation and all of those, all of those technologies, mm -hmm. um, you saw, you saw like, IT, like information technology, like all the people that handle your computers and your software and your solutions within big companies. Mm -hmm. Those people, those teams actually saw all of that AI and all that automation first, right? And there was always this concern that, oh, you, you know, we're not going to be needed anymore. Well, that's not really true. What, what you do need is you have the automation in place and then you need the humans to do more strategic things. So yes. if you take that sort of same principle to creative and what we're doing from a marketing perspective is that you can use AI in certain 
places where, you know, so we have some, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but we have some places where we do use automation. It's not on the creative side. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, but it is, you know, maybe on the analytics side or something. Or process. Yeah, or process, those kinds of things, um, you know, to help on the production from a project management standpoint. But mm -hmm. that's freeing us up to do more storytelling, to collaboratively sit and try to figure out, like, when we're working on a campaign for Disney, you know, each of those pieces have to tell a really, really succinct story. Um, and depending on the window that we're dealing with, theatrical or home entertainment, um, it depends on how we tell that story. Um, and so that takes some really great brainstorming. If you're coming in the home entertainment window, they've already told the story in a one way. So we have yeah. to figure out how can we say it differently? That's still going to be really of interest to the audience. Um, so I believe that some of the AI is actually going to free us up to really focus on what we would call more of these high value um, and I don't think the brands that are, are still continuing to churn and burn and use that kind of technology just to spit out the things that you've always done, I don't think that's going to be effective in the long run. I agree. I always said, you know, good creative just doesn't get spit out of a computer. It comes from creative people. Um, yes. uh, you know, Jay-Z, uh, we all probably know who Jay-Z is. He had a, a song years ago and he said, 30s is the new 20s. And you actually had a blog that you said, uh, 40s is the new 30s. And I loved, love, love it. Grab my attention. I don't want to talk about that if it's okay. So I want to discuss that. Uh, one of the things you said was, you know, uh, Gen X millennials and Gen Z are even more blended with technology, content, consumption, and social forces being main drivers of, changed, of change. Um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that and how, you know, how the brands, you know, um, how this is coming about now, because it used to be this, this um, standard, oh, uh, we're going after adults 2554 was sure. like a standard demo. And now that's all like almost out of the window now. Right. Yeah. Well, I do think a lot of people are still using that method. I think that you're losing and have some missed opportunities for sure. And I think, um, you were touching a little bit on that in terms of the pieces of, um, you know, from that blog post. Mm -hmm. um, it's with sort of all of these different technologies and, you know, even down to streaming and the content that we're watching, we're watching some of the same content generationally. And, you know, people like people like Disney and Hulu and, and HBO, like HBO, like, and, and Netflix to a certain extent is, is to are telling stories that are actually crossing over all of these industries. Plus we have mm -hmm. social platforms and, you know, I mean, there are grandmas on TikTok now, you know, so it's like, there's grandma influencers. So it's kind of, it's oh, kind of, I mean, all platforms age up, you know, it's like, while it might start with the younger generations, um, you, to get to mainstream, you, ha you have to have a cross section of different, um, you know, of different people, um, and different ages and generations. And the thing, the thing is, is like, if I get served up an ad that is sort of on point for my age from a demographic, I've got to say, honestly, the brand seems tone deaf because clearly they don't understand who I am. Wow. Um, and I believe in agelessness and sort wow. of, 
being, you know, able to do that and, and sort of evolve and, and look at sort of age as a state of mind, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you take that from a marketing principle, you, you definitely, you definitely should do the same because you, you might miss out on, you know, I mean, remember so do you remember, this is probably not a good example, but InStyle used to have, like, they would have, like, from a magazines, and this is what you wear in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s. Uh-huh. And I remember sort of as, like, you're starting to, like, inch into these other ages, and I never Yeah, and, and, and you'd be fearful of what you saw for, like, 10, 15 years down the road, like, oh, yeah, God. And I'm like, Gosh, I don't want to do that. F? I'm not going to wear that <laughs> ever. <laughs> but but what was the music industry saying? I mean, like the labels, I mean, how could they say, you know, like there has to be some kind of morality to say, you know, hey, you're a big artist and, and we need to know if these things are true or, you know, what's happening or we can't have you on the label. You didn't just say morality and music industry in the same <laughs> sentence, did you, Eric? Look, <laughs> Jive Records is started by a South African man in London, uh, Clive Calder, and it is run by a Jewish fellow in New York, Barry Weiss, they were well aware of the hush money settlements being paid to underage women. They were well aware of the Aaliyah uh, statutory rape. Uh, There was money to be made and they weren't going to derail the gravy train. The -hmm. music industry is complicit from the lowliest tape operator and studio gopher to Clive Calder and Barry Weiss at the top of Jive Records. They knew about this behavior for decades. They turned a blind eye. Uh, As long as money was being made, Kelly sold 100 million records, about 70 million of his own. And then let's tack on the artists he produced, everyone from Whitney Houston and Celine Dion to Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga. Michael Uh, Jackson. Michael Jackson. Yeah, I remember asking people who were in Chicago Recording Company, what was the conversation like between those two? Uh, Kelly wrote, you are not alone about Aaliyah, but Jackson makes it a hit. And it it, it spoke to both of the uh, accusations against both of those men, uh, really, in retrospect. But Kelly never made a secret. What was the title of the album he wrote and produced for Aaliyah? AJ, Nothing But a Number. It was there. In a very Dostoevsky crime and punishment way, he was announcing his crimes. And perhaps if you want to play armchair psychiatrist, something I always resist, perhaps saying, catch me if you can, stop me if you will. Um, You know, to be clear, the many, many, many young women who trusted me with their stories, they never said, I hate the SOB, lock them away for life. Mm. They always said, brother has a problem. Brother needs help. Brother's got to stop. That's that's quoted in your book, too. Again and again, Eric, I heard those words more than any other. And the other sentence I heard more of. Now, I, I do not speak for black women. I am merely amplifying what dozens have told me. I was a young black girl who was going to believe me. They don't count in our system. And wiser men than me have said that. Malcolm X, you know, uh, and many others. Young black girls. We don't believe women in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even despite the FBI statistics, uh, only 40% of sexual assaults are ever reported to the criminal justice system. 
which I say mm-hmm. in quotes because we know the problems, right? Yeah, and, and, and even probably a lot less among African-American and women. Even less among African-American women. And the FBI, not a liberal organization, says that of the 40% uh, reported, less than 1% turn out to be false accusations. Wow. So, so if that, you factor that's a in that's a discouragement in itself, it's a discouragement. You know, this is not a plague of women making false accusations against men. And what I have been saying since the sentencing, you know, we didn't believe Anita Hill when she went to Capitol Hill with very credible accusations of sexual harassment. We didn't believe Dr. Christine Blasey Ford two decades later when she went to Capitol Hill with very credible accusations of rape. And now those two men who sit on the Supreme Court help take away a woman's right to control her own body. Wow. This is wow. a bigger story. Now, the Kelly story is plenty big in itself. As a pop music lover and critic and historian, you know, men have been treating women badly in popular music since the era of the Bobby Soxers until last week. But no one, we have to take a breath because I don't think this has sunk into people. No one in the history of popular music, name your favorite villain, has ever been convicted of the breadth and depth of crimes uh, as Robert Sylvester Kelly. And that was in the first federal trial. There's the second is going to start in Chicago in August. Uh, he is truly the world's greatest, to borrow one of his song titles, to which I would only append Predator. What do you what do you think are some attributes of a great leader? I mean, you ran you ran a good company. You're still leading now. I mean, what are, what do you think are some attributes that some leaders should have? I had lots of bad leaders. I had lots of bad bosses. And do you know what? I learned more from them than I did from the good bosses. A good boss. Do tell. Tell me, tell me what a good boss is. A good boss is someone who listens to you, someone that doesn't push you, that someone doesn't, you know, that never gives you a hard time, doesn't doesn't worry you, doesn't ring you at the weekend, doesn't that's a great boss, right? Absolutely not. A great mm-hmm. boss is going to work out how good you can be and drive you to get you there. Because you don't know how good you can be. Only only somebody who's been where you want to go knows how good you can be and how much potential you've got. You know, I see these kids coming in. I say, look, you have so much potential. You have so much ability. Let me bring it out of you. Yeah, but I only, oh. want, to do it. I only want to do it from nine to five. Yeah, and, and please, my you know, don't 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 take damn. Me. It's my damn. Purpose. Were you were you in my damn sales meetings? Were you in my meeting, Simon, with the stuff that you're saying right now? I mean, carry on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Carry on. I mean, that's so truthful. We're cut from the same cloth, right? We want to make people better. If we're not making people better, then we're, what are we? What are we here? How can you be a good leader? Oh yes, my staff love me. I get amazing reviews in the three hundred and sixty. Oh, they 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 just say that you know. I've got sweets and chocolates and biscuits and crisps. I've got a juicer. I've got a coffee machine. I've got a toast maker. I've got toasters. I've got the latest beans from wherever they've come from. I've got sofas. My my office looks like a five star hotel. I was told yesterday. It's a cross between Soho House meets I know the addition, and I'm like, <laughs> I've got everything. But you know what? Well, I haven't got people who want to fight with me right now. I haven't got enough of them because we lost so many of them in in this pandemic. And that's my job now. My job, I have two things. I've got to look for amazing opportunities for the business to grow and find amazing people to join our join our band of merry men. So now let's talk about um, how 
everything happened, you know, with, with COVID and all as a, because you got to think, I mean, you are doing print magazines. So, and in doing so, there's a lot of things that you kind of had to front pay or, or, or put out there or get done and then kind of wait on your money. And then here comes this, this thing out of nowhere, everything's grounded. I mean, what is that like? Because at some point, you are you're investing you you're, you're spending on expenses and then you know the the typical uh, business wheel is you put it out it's coming back but then it didn't come back it didn't come back so what what was that like for you i've got one word expensive <laughs> <laughs> the uh you know we, we we got to march 9th which is my wedding anniversary that's why i remember it so well and the uh, the airline started phoning up saying Hey, we're going to take these magazines off the plane. You know, they could cut, they could pass COVID. We don't know. It could be dirty. Mm-hmm. I went, okay, let's hope there's not too many of them. And literally by the end of the month, they'd all taken the magazines off the planes. Every one of those magazines we'd paid for, we'd printed, we'd paid for all the editorial, we'd paid for all the distribution, we'd flown them to wherever they needed to get to. And we're producing millions of magazines every single month. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we were on track to do about 150 million in 2020 and we went not just to zero, we went to minus zero because we literally had to start getting, trying to get the money back that or people wanted their money back because they didn't get what we, what we sold them or, mm-hmm. you know, and they felt, they felt missold. I mean, it was obviously all my fault and, you know, I, I had everybody coming at me, my staff, oh, this is your fault. <laughs> I'm like, I, I didn't do this. Oh, the advertisers are not happy. They want their money back. You know, you haven't published their magazine. I said, okay. So everywhere, investors, <laughs> the neighbor next door, why are you? Why is your office open? You know, we're supposed to be in lockdown. Mm. Whoever, wherever you turned, you had somebody complaining and moaning to you during that period. And, you know, I got, I got good at being able to, to just switch off and go, okay, there's too much in there. So I wear the t-shirt now, it says starve the noise. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I want good news only. You know, there was, I was looking at the television screens and all I could see was deaths, deaths, death, deaths, negative news everywhere. And I went, that's it. I'm not watching anymore. I'm going to focus on the positive things. What, what can I control? This is really what I've dedicated my life to. And now it's 20 years later. And what we're seeing especially coming out of COVID, I was, as I was just mentioning, the world has completely shifted from a things mm-hmm. economy to an experience economy. Mm-hmm. And we see this in terms of millennials who are spending way more money on experiences than things, right? 72% of millennials prefer to spend money on experiences than buying things, right? This is a, a, a generational change. We see retail brands that are yeah. literally shutting down every single day. Right. Look at the news. And it's like this retail brand bankruptcy, this retail brand out of business. Right. Why would I ever walk into a store if I can buy anything I want on my phone? Right. Potentially same day delivery. Don't have to wait in line and deal with annoying people. Better customer service. Like, why would I ever walk into a store? Um, But what we're seeing is this global transformation from a things economy to an experience economy. And the biggest, most successful brands in the world understand this and are doubling down on actually scaling experiential engagement as the primary way that they're interacting with their customers. 
Yeah. Damn, you know, Jonathan, I remember, um, you know, in my old radio days, I remember we would get like, uh, this is when we had to wait on the fax machine to give us like orders and we run the radio radio ads. Absolutely. Um, and, and I remember like getting an, an ad, you know, like getting a buy from like Red Bull, you know, for um, at the time we, I had no damn idea, you know, what it did. And I didn't think about experience. We were just selling spots and dots at the time is all it was. But I do remember like Red Bull just like just taking over everything. And and I think you're exactly right was they never sat there and talked about taste. What they just did was it was all experiences. So it was the experiences that built that brand. That's right. Really what it was, dude. That's right. You know, and the best brands don't need to talk about product. Right. Red Bull never t- tells you, hey, this is a functional energy drink beverage. It tastes like stale candy or something, right? Like they don't need to say that. They just say, look, it gives you wings. Right, right. Right. And you associate, and we, we put a, you know, a billion dollars a year into these incredible experiences that, that, you know, made people think about adventure, risk-taking, extreme sports, all of these things. And mm-hmm. the second you are, you know, racing your car down the down the freeway to you know get to your friend's house and you're like a little bit tired and you pull over you're like i need wings now and right you know that that alone uh turns into a lot of brand perception um so absolutely you know apple doesn't talk about how many you know the 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 inner workings of the iphone they just say look this is a phone that does everything basically you know it's 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 funny you say that you know when you think about I guess Red Bull is kind of a perfect one to talk about like how a brand experience can just change everything and how experiences and everything as well, especially millennials could sell some millennials will trade in money just for better experience in their job, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. Uh, you know, so, I mean, you, so now you worked, you worked with Red Bull. I mean, you had this, you know, the scientific background and there was no data and, 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 and how did you forge on from there to say, you know, I, I'm going to create this, I can scale this, or I can, uh, I can create something that's going to be, that can be quantifiable for people where they can see the numbers. Right. Yeah. How, how did you, how did you get there? Yeah. So the, the big, the big takeaway was that the frustration that I had at Red Bull uh, helping to, you know, helping to manage a billion dollar budget and having no real visibility into the, the ROI, mm-hmm. uh, turns out that same thing was on the minds of a lot of different brands. Oh. And, uh, and it is actually accelerating, right? So more and more brands are investing heavily in this. Your brand wow. like Lululemon that spend $300 million a year on free yoga classes. Why? Same, same, same thing as Red Bull, right? They're not trying to sell you an additional pair of yoga pants. They're saying, we want to be the place where you do all your yoga and we'll do it. And you can take your yoga inside a Lululemon store for free in almost any city in the world. Right. And they want to bring together the yoga community, knowing that by doing that, they build brand love and ultimately they sell more pants, but they're playing the long game right? The same way we did at Red Bull, right? You have brands like Michael's art stores that do a million art classes per year mm-hmm. all over North America. You have, you have brands like Nike that are actually turning their, some of their stores into like basketball courts because they don't care if you walk in and buy a pair of Jordans, 
right? A lot of people buy buy shoes on their phone now, right? They want you yeah. to walk in, try on a pair of Jordans, play basketball against a Nike employee in the store, have this great experience. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, I just got to play ball inside of a Nike store wearing a new pair of Jordans. This was great. And then I'll walk out and I'll buy those same pair of Jordans on my phone later that day. Right. So wow. again, we're turning, we're going away from this idea of revenue per square foot, which is a very antiquated way to look at retail footprints and toward a way where if all commerce is moving to the phone, like in China, which is probably 15 years ahead of us from a commerce perspective, then retail space is focused on consumer engagement and ultimately on experiences. Um, Damn. That's nuts, man. You know, like, so, so where does that leave some of the retailers today? Or you would make the make it would make you think that some of the box stores or the retailers would say, "We need to focus on experiences, guys." You know, I, I mean, so where are they in their thinking? Are they behind yeah. now? Are some of them uh, within ten years? My belief is that every single retailer will go out of business, or become an experience, wow. or become an experiential brand. Um, and then, I mean, you, again, I, I look at China because they're again, about 15 years ahead of us, uh, mm-hmm. people buy everything on their phone, right? Yeah. You can literally go buy one watermelon on you open your, open your phone, buy one watermelon and they'll deliver it to you in like an hour, like a water. You're just like, I want a watermelon. Somebody will mm-hmm. give you a watermelon. So all commerce happens on the phone, but what you have is, and again, people get shocked when they hear this. Uh, Alibaba, which is a, you know, a, a massive, massive company uh, that mm-hmm. really powers a lot of um, uh, a lot of commerce in, in China and JD.com also are actually building physical shopping malls and physical stores in China. And people are like, wait, that's crazy, right? Yeah. Like yeah. What, these are digital first companies like powering all e-commerce, like ridiculously you know it's like amazon having a store well amazon is opening stores right damn so um so that's the whole thing and this is what this is what brands are realizing is that even though purchases have moved to the phone and are continuing to do so uh those real life experiences cannot be substituted by something digital Mm -hmm. Right. So Alibaba and JD, their whole perspective here is go to those stores, go to those malls, experience these products. Right. And that way you will have a higher chance of purchasing it later on. Man, I want to give a special shout out to your wife right now, man, for being able to, she's going through labor right now and she can work. She's still working. So she's a champ. So we're going to give her a round of applause right now too. But you know, um, one thing that's super important too is, uh, being healthy as an entrepreneur, these, yeah. a lot of the things that I'm learning now, you know, and Eric, it's, it's, it's always like, you know, when we were, we're younger, we're 21, we think we don't need health insurance, that kind of thing. Cause we think we're invincible. I made that um, exact mistake, by the way, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like you get into it and you think like, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't need anything else, but, uh, the health of an entrepreneur, not just the physical health, but the mental health is also important too. Right. And you mm-hmm. and I touched about, we touched on that right before we started. I mean, tell me, tell me how important it is for the physical and mental health of an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you kind of said it like, you know, if you're tired, how worth are you? Like, if you're not healthy, you're worthless. And both mentally and physically, like it's, 
and it's something that I, I the mental health conversation is really interesting because yeah. it, everybody's different. And I, th- how do I put it? Like, like being an entrepreneur, there's true anxiety, there's true stress that you deal with, but there's also mm-hmm. a, a truth that it's like, you also pick this. Like, I think people get mm-hmm. caught up in a lot of the hype of mental health right now. This is not to discount it. I've dealt with anxiety problems. I had to take a week off earlier this year because it was so stressful. I was like shaking and not sleeping, couldn't eat. Like, the, you know, there's times where it's like that bad and I get it. So it's not, not discounting the fact that it happens. I think the focus on it is actually debilitating though. I think the problem is when it's top of mind and you're constantly thinking about anxiety, guess what you're thinking about? So uh, I, I think the, uh, the issue on mental health is, all, you know, taking ownership and take, and not, again, this is not to discount the fact that it's stressful. It's to say that when you realize that this is all by choice, that nobody yeah. forced you to be an entrepreneur, it really helps that side. The physical yeah. health part, I think we sacrifice often. I really make an uh, effort not to, but anywhere from I'm working, so I don't have time to work out to my, that was a back to my wife. I remember it was like four years ago, I think. And I was like, yeah, I just haven't had the time to work out. She's like, nah, you don't make the time. You're just pri- not prioritizing mm. the time. I'm like, change that vernacular. She's like, you could work wow. out. You just have to sacrifice something else. And you're not say- you're saying it's not worth that sacrifice. You have the time. Wow. It's your choice. It's like, that wow. is super fair. And frankly, from then on, I was pretty consistent about my fitness side of things because it was like, I'm making the time. Like, this is absolutely a priority. If I get sick or can't, you know, longevity is where wealth is created. Like, yeah, people get lucky and, you know, spike and boom, they make a bunch of money by 30 or 40. Mm-hmm. Most people that make wealth, it's because they stuck with it for a long time and kept working and kept grinding and got through the hard parts. Like that's real, real wealth is mostly created. And so mm-hmm. keeping yourself healthy is important. And the other thing is like, you're on the road, you're traveling around, you're running around, you don't have time. So you start eating shit food. Like all these True. things that we do as entrepreneurs, that's like hard to avoid that it takes a lot of willpower and attention not to, to keep your workouts going, to keep eating healthy while you're running through. Cause it's like, how many things can you fucking juggle and think about at the same time? And True. so you're, you're dealing with so many things on your business. You sacrifice a lot of personal stuff. It's a very standard thing to do. And it's, you know, at, at the end of the day, what are you going to regret more? Not making a little extra money or, and while you're sitting there with whether it's diabetes or cancer or something that you can get from some of the shit we do to ourselves or, you it's know, true. the, it, so that's, it's been something very real to me. And like now I joined the board of a fitness company that allows, that's uh, basically personal training virtually. So it allows people to be flexible with it called workout.com. Not the first O, so W-R-K-O-U-T. That's been, I've been now a customer also for like a year, a little over a year. And it's the consistency, like things like that, that I'm like, these are the things that like entrepreneurs need, that people need that are running around like this. And there's a way to do it. And again, it goes back to the, the uh, sort of enemy of the hustle culture, like, you got to take time for every one of this. Take take breaks. Take time to go do your own thing. Do Balance your work. And, you know, part of the benefit of being an entrepreneur is you get to run it in the sense of control, make it run how you want it to run. Build the yep. thing you want to run. Self-sustainability is more important than anything else you're focused on. Keeping yourself interested, that's where you're going to make money or you're going to... Uh, yeah, make money, frankly, like, because if you, again, that like good example is you can burn yourself out, then you're just not going to do anything. You're not going to be worth this. You're going to freak out. You're going to make bad decisions. You're going to get into protectionism, like all these things that happen when you don't take care of yourself. I think another thing too, and, and, and all these things, I can't even talk about it unless I just be truthful and just say, shit, I was guilty of a lot of it too, is like when you have that hustle mentality, hustle culture mindset, you actually, um, you take it out on your people too. 
because yeah. then you, you always think like, well, they're not working as hard as I am. Well, yeah. shit, you might not be giving they them never enough will, to do. By the way. They you also know? never uh, will. Just true. that's, that's yeah. a reality too. Like they don't have as much in it as you do. And that's, you got to accept that because that'll stress out every entrepreneur. It's like, why don't they work as hard? Why aren't they, you know, doing smarter things, making better decisions? I, I thankfully had an employee say to me like, six months into the business, I was like, how can we help you be more entrepreneurial? And she's like, she was comfortable with me. She goes, I work for you. I'm not a fucking entrepreneur. <laughs> now, now, what was that? What was that conversation like? I mean, that was it. I was like, did you, did you just stop? Like, like, I was like, yeah, you're just shocked? She, to be clear, she was an executive at the company for six years. Like she's, that didn't, that wasn't the end of her tenure. That was the very beginning. And she was just like, what are you talking about? Like, if I was an entrepreneur, why would I be sitting here? You give me a paycheck. Like, don't find a way. I'm not an entrepreneur. Um, another uh, tip I will give for contracts is to make sure that uh, it includes, well, what I want to say, because I got like three things. Um, make sure that it includes what's called a merger clause. And the merger clause is also referred to as an integration clause, right? So mm. this is just saying this document that we are both signing is the complete agreement between us. Now, okay. oftentimes, Eric, you know, you might talk to the business, your business uh, partner before signing or after signing. You guys, okay. new things might come up, right? Yeah, yeah. Opportunities may come up, all that. Right. But mm -hmm. you don't want the written contract to ever be in dispute. So that's why you put that merger clause to say, this is the complete and final agreement, right? So yes. if if Bob calls me after we sign the agreement and says, well, you know, Candace, actually $2,000 uh, is not enough. I really think we should do three. And I agree to it. Well, then we need to draft a new contract, right? But or, if we never draft an, a, a amendment or, or right, anything like that? Right, you can do that. Um, okay. But if you don't, then that written contract stands, right? So that's really important because sometimes you'll send a text message and, and think about new things and then it just gets really yeah. complicated. So you always want to put that merger clause in there to say, no, doesn't matter what phone calls we had, what text messages, this is the complete and final agreement. If the parties ever decide to change the terms, then they need to change and amend the contract and, and resign, right? So that's another thing that I see in my practice um, the business owners, you know, don't pay attention to. I, I agree <laughs> with you because I think I think we're so focused on the how much you're going to get paid and how long that what the term is, exactly. you know, exactly. and and I think it's you know that's the salesperson in us, you know, in our companies when we're doing business with another party, we're like, okay, we're going to get this much money for this long, and uh, don't worry about it. There won't be any arguments. But then the minute something uh, comes up, boy, oh boy. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, I should have read that contract. Do you see that coming back on people often? Like, you know, contract disputes or a lot of different issues there? I do all the time, all the time, all the time. Um, you know, like you said, you guys, you, you, both business owners just focus on the money. Okay, I'm supposed mm -hmm. to get paid 10 million. It says 10 million. I'm signing. But there's mm -hmm. a lot of different loopholes that us attorneys intentionally put in contracts. I'm an attorney. I'm telling you all. When the client asks me to draft a contract for them, I intentionally put petty things in there because I'm protecting my client. I don't care about the person signing it. It's their job right. to get their own attorney to review it and advise them. So I see a lot of people make that mistake where they only look at the money and they sign, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it might be a provision in there, you know, that says, hey, if you don't do this service within a certain amount of time, you have to give me my money back. 
Right. Well, what what about this though, Candace? What if they have a contract, right? And they had it drafted by just a general lawyer and not someone who's as specific as you are in contracts and trademarks and service marks. So they have a contract and they enter into an agreement, things fall out, and now they come to you and they say, can you review this contract? Has there ever been a time where, uh, and I know you offer the masterclass and I want to definitely make sure we put notes to that, that link to it. But have you, has there ever been a time where you have to kind of almost redo something because it's like, this is what you do as far as contract disputes or writing contracts. But the other attorney who put it together was just kind of rocket lawyering or, or legal zooming the thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I won't say that I, I get um, bad contracts too often from other lawyers, but I will say business owners themselves try to draft contracts, right? So they'll draft their mm -hmm. own contract. They'll copy and paste from Google or rocket lawyer or whatever. And then they'll come to me later when it's an issue and say, can you help me? Right. Yeah. And so then when I'm reviewing it, I'm like, who drafted this? What, you know, what happened? So I, I definitely get that. I definitely get that um, quite often. But the, the most common issue I see with contract uh, matters is either the business owner doesn't draft a written contract. It's a verbal mm. agreement mm -hmm. or two, someone else gives them the contract to sign and they don't have their own attorney review it. They just sign mm. it. So whenever there's an issue, now you're kind of at a, the person would be at a disadvantage because contracts are still enforceable if they're verbal, but now you have to prove that the contract exists, right? Wow. So wow. now we got to go and piece together text messages, emails, right? To try to prove, yes, we had a contract, you know? So yeah it, it gets kind of crazy with, <laughs> with those contracts that, that's so interesting man hey guys it's eric i want to thank you so much for being amazing listeners of the adcast what you've given us is your most valuable asset the thing that money can't buy that's your time and you've also given us your attention and i hope that we didn't waste your time as you listen to all these moments that we compiled for you for 2022 and if you thought 2022 was amazing, you just wait until you see what we have in store for you for 2023. Shh, I can't, I can't tell you anything else. That's all I can say. But we have some amazing guests. We're going to focus on topics from mental health. We're going to talk about, you know, what you do in your business when things get hard. So you're going to hear from people who've hit rock bottom and you're going to hear from people who've been on the mountaintop. It's going to be amazing. I hope that 2023 is going to be the year that you have imagined and you get everything that you've expected. Thank you for listening.